Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. Ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road today. We are going to cover cyclocross pro tips because Nate, we have a pro with us. We have mm -hmm. Ivy with us right here. Amazing. Pretty awesome. We're going to cover carb intake, but we're also going to cover why it gets so hard when it's really hot. That's a common thing that, uh, I forced Nate to experience at Leadville when I handed him a gigantic steaming hot hydration pack full of Martin. Poor guy. It was, it was simmering. <laughs> and then we're also going to cover how to convert like steady state fitness into punchy fitness and a bunch of other topics too. So it's going to be tons of fun. We've got squid bikes. Ivy, you with us? What's up, Ivy? Hey, how's it going? Good. Are you feeling better? A little bit. Okay. We're going to cover that. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll recovering, talk about <laughs> fr recovering from illness is another thing. And then we also have our CEO, Nate Pearson. What's up, Nate? Hello. What's up, John? You and I like almost matching on shirts. It's a good look. I like it. Style. Sorry, I missed the memo. I can't wear anything but a black shirt because I sweat so much. Podcasts will make me <laughs> nervous and you guys would be really stressed out if you saw how much I would put out normally. <laughs> Behind the scenes. I love it. High TSS uh, to record a podcast. You could see or not see these things. If you join us on YouTube, you can do that Thursdays at 8 a.m. Pacific and go subscribe to our YouTube channel. And also you have to go onto Spotify and rate us because we're really close to taking over the lead as the number one rated cycling podcast on Spotify. We're really close. So go to Spotify, search for ask a cycling coach podcast and rate us. We're five stars on there. Give us a five star rating. If you feel we deserve it, if not, then send a message or send all of your questions to trainerroad.com slash podcast. There's a form that you can use to submit your questions. And that's where we've gotten the questions that we got here today. A couple uh, house cleaning, housekeeping items. I always mess that up. And then somebody sends me an angry message about it. So I apologize. <laughs> I'll just say it both ways. Uh, first thing, Kona podcasts. We're going to record one with a handful of folks, uh, not a ton, just a handful of folks. We're going to record interviews with you. If you've used trainer road to qualify and prepare for Ironman world championships in Hawaii, we aren't going to be there this year in person, uh, but we'll do these interviews remotely via zoom at your convenience. That way we don't mess up your race week. It'll be nice and easy for you. I'm super excited uh, to cheer all of you on. And I know that we have a ton of athletes going there. So, uh, if you go to our Instagram or actually to the forum, trainerroad.com slash forum, there is a sticky thread at the very top. And that sticky thread is going to instruct you if you are a Kona qualifier to fill out this form. So then you have a chance to be featured on that special episode of the podcast. So spread the word to others who may not be hearing this that have used trainer road to qualify for Kona. It'd be awesome to have them on. Uh, then we also have a brand new science of getting faster episode that Sarah recorded is awesome. It was on habitual versus supplemental caffeine with Dr. Brian Saunders and mm. Dr. Saunders was very good at driving toward your benefit being an athlete. Like sometimes Nate, right? Like the researchers, cause they've done so much work and they've like, they're so well-versed in every aspect inside and out of these topics that sometimes it seems like it's diff like you really have to drive the conversation. So then they get to the benefit for the listener. But Dr. Saunders did an awesome job with Sarah. As I drink coffee, I hope habitual is the better way. It's interesting <laughs> because really like what it's looking at is Nate, we've talked about this before. You take in a lot of caffeine. I don't. Mm -hmm. So for you, uh, a smaller dosage of caffeine seems to have very minimal effect on you. Whereas on mm -hmm. me, it would have a very profound effect. And he did a meta meta analysis looking at a huge, I think over 1100 athletes in this study. Wow. And, uh, so yeah, tons of them and, and, uh, drew conclusions from that about whether or how it affects different people in different ways. And Mark Allen, a famous 
multi-time Ironman, he really made it popular back in the day. I think a lot of people hold on to this where he um, did not have any caffeine for many weeks leading up to the race and then would do it all on race day. And that is the hardest part of training for me, if that is a thing. So <laughs> I, I, I haven't listened to this yet, but I hope it's, um, it's like, it's like Chad with alcohol. It's like, I, th- I don't trust the science. If they, yeah. <laughs> 1100 athletes, that's not enough. 45 studies or whatever it is. Like that's not yeah, enough. Yeah. <laughs> I need some more what people refer to as like a tolerance break sometimes to mm-hmm. then like increase yeah. the impact. Yeah. I've tried that. If, I'm interested to hear this because I've tried that a few times. And basically what happens in the times that I take a tolerance break from caffeine, I'm just like, raging jerk and it just doesn't work out and then when i try and then when i get back on caffeine like it doesn't feel any more you know impactful than it was prior so this will be a good episode for me to listen to too i just sit on tiktok tiktok without caffeine I'm like don't get out of bed <laughs> yeah. Which is slightly yeah. depressing like to say it but sure yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so this, it's a great episode. Go check it out. You can either watch it on our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash train road. But I'd suggest just going onto Spotify and giving rating the ask a cycling Co- coach podcast and rating the science of getting faster podcast. Just search for science of getting faster on any podcast app and you'll find it. And we also have a new cycling science explained uh, video where, uh, I appear shirtless, Nate. Uh, I'm sure that's going to repel people. I apologize. (laughs) And uh, I go through uh, experimentation on the topic that we're discussing uh, for all of us to learn. It's good. It's a good one. It's a lot of fun. Uh, It's going to have a good thumbnail too. So stay tuned for that. And finally, we're hiring a a data engineer. Yeah, it's it's a good one. Uh, I do have my shirt on for the thumbnail. I promise. Um, We're hiring a data engineer. Uh, So go to trainroad.com slash jobs. If that is something that interests you, we would love to have you work with us here. Uh, Mike sent this in at trainerroad.com slash podcast, just like you can, if you're listening, Mike said, really love the last segment when you pulled up trainer road recorded data to analyze your employee's race. And that employee was Kent main an absolute, just an, an, an athlete, a proper athlete, uh, super cool. He said, I learned so much, like how to dissect data into manageable chunks equally interpret er, and also equally interpret your data. Uh, with less daylight in the US, I came indoors, turned off the podcast, fired up YouTube, and it was worth it. Uh, so just a thought, might add more of these, perhaps structure them to the end of your weekly podcast so viewers know quickly how to pull them up. Um, and he mentions that then we could timestamp it um, as we do on podcasts and YouTube for all of you. So if that is of interest to folks, we want to give you what uh, makes you faster and what interests you. So yeah, let us know. Trainroad.com slash podcast. Uh, Ivy, I mentioned you were ill. This is like the beginning of your season. While all of us have been racing, even though you like race just as much as I did, uh, even more than I did, uh, and it was your off season, but this is your on season, cyclocross season's beginning, and you got sick right before your whole block of racing started. Yeah, uh, it was supposed to be the start of my season, but... Do you know what you had? And then how um, are you managing training? Because this is one of the most common questions we get, right, Nate? And we've gotten it for years. Uh uh, what do I do when I get sick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how am I managing training? Not well. Um, this was <laughs> like, uh, devastating. I don't think really covers it. I'm normally a pretty healthy person and haven't been sick since January when I got COVID for the first time. And that was, um, pretty bad for me, but I feel like I was able to bounce back and get into training pretty quickly. Um, and so, this time I did a gravel race just kind of like as a final tune up before heading into the first UCI block of the season. And, um, the fires were for, like forest fires really bad in the region where that was racing. And so after immediately after the race, I started getting this like dry cough and I was like, Oh, I think it's just, 
the smoke, the AQI in the air, or like quick cough. You know, sometimes after really hard effort, you have that kind of shallow, dry cough. And so I kind of dismissed it. Um, but then uh, the next morning, it was really clear that I was pretty sick and tested negative for COVID a whole bunch. And so my assumption was that it was the flu or something. Um, and it, it would have been, you know, so much easier if it was just like being knocked out for a couple days and like a normal cold or no, normal illness. But like I've had this lung thing that's persisted for almost 10 days now. So I took um, a week totally off the bike. Um, I did go. Um, I'm glad that I went to an urgent care to get some more information, get my lungs listened to to make sure it's not um, pneumonia or some sort of like serious infection or something. So that's where I'm at now is um, I missed the first UCI weekend. I'm going to race this weekend because I now have medical confirmation that like it's okay. As long as I know that I have a treatment plan. Um, it's good to know that if I feel okay, breathing hard, if it's not painful, um, it won't like do something like catapult me into like pneumonia or something. If I get into a really hard effort. So I'm gonna, I've ridden, you know, a couple days in the past couple weeks and I'll do a few more rides going into this race weekend. And I had to really like change my expectations is when I say devastating, it's because I had such a good year of training. Like I've been training for this season since January and have set a whole bunch of power records this summer and just very quantifiably have been stronger than I ever have before, even stronger than like the pro road days. So I was really, really, really excited. Now I feel like it's a huge setback and it's easy to think that Ugh. like it's all over and I should like, I shouldn't even bother, but, um, hopefully it'll just take me a couple races to get, get back into it. And I'll have plenty, plenty of chances to do better later this year. Ivy, you sound down. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's really, it's really discouraging, you know, to be, um, like I just worked so hard with balancing work and finally feel like I nailed nutrition and nailed recovery and like finally was nailing tra training and like everything was going right. Um, so it's just like, when is it my turn to be happy? You know, like I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty discouraged. So I'm just trying to look at this weekend as like a learning opportunity. Like it's good for me actually to have these chances to relearn my expectations and try to get something positive out of a scenario that otherwise would let me down. So it's good. But the I'm so sad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I can sense your disappointment. It weighs heavy on me too. Uh, I don't want, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> no, it's fine. No, no. I gladly carry that. Right. Like, uh, because yeah, we all care. Um, this is probably, I bet somebody's listening to this right now, Ivy. Well, many, uh, people are probably going like, it's me. Like, that's my, like, that's how I feel right now because, this sort of thing does happen and it doesn't, it's not uncommon that it happens as you're getting close to a peak or, I mean, you're not close to a peak, but even then when you're just getting real fit and you're training in lots and everything else, it just can happen. And cross season's particularly tough because you go through like, it's really prominent to have illness throughout the fall and into the winter. So that's really tricky. It's also kind of a long season because you start racing in September or late August, then you finish up in February in some cases, uh, you know, at the extreme end, maybe I'm sure you've thought of this Ivy, but maybe this is like, maybe this is something where it's a, a setback now, but then come December and January, it's actually a benefit. And Nate, I see you shaking your head. You're thinking maybe the same thing just happened with Hannah, right? She got sick mm -hmm. and she couldn't train. And then she was like, Oh my God, it was the recovery I needed. And then she won Leadville. 
<laughs> so you'll win Leadville, basically, is what we're saying, Ivy. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Perfect. Thank you. I think Ivy didn't biggest... know she was racing Leadville, but yeah. Yeah, here, here we go. Uh, it's funny. I did it. The gravel race that I did um, was only four hours long, but was like so hard for me. That's so much longer than the kind of effort that I trained for and like physiologically what I'm well, like suited to do well at. Um, mm. I'm not doing Leadville. Sorry. <laughs> Your future self, though, could what John's saying could be like, oh, thank goodness I got sick because yeah. I'm so much fresher when everyone else is tired and you win some big race. I hope mm-hmm. I hope that that's true. And something that I'm trying to address now and this weekend to make sure that I'm set up to do that is to not allow myself to get into this mindset of um, putting a bunch of weight in this weekend's results when I haven't been riding much and I'm still getting healthier. Like it's so mm-hmm. easy for me to... Um, historically for me to assign so much weight into a result like this when I know I can't perform well and I know that I need to use it as like a tune-up and to kind of ease back into racing and it's so easy for me to get into this trap of um thinking that like this is my value and this is where I'm at this season and never recover from it so I really have to go into this next block with a lot of intention and understanding where I'm at and where I can be and what I've done historically what I think you're what you're saying we've seen with so many athletes over time um, fall in this exact same situation. And I, I also see a lot of triathletes do this. Well, sometimes they'll actually pull out of a race that they're doing fine in because they don't want the result because they don't want to know the time or see a time on the results where they normally do five hours and they get a six and a half and they just don't want that on their record. Um, when I think you're right, Ivy, it's a tune up. This is a C race. This is where are you at right now? There's all these other things that you can uh, learn about it and be very beneficial where the result does not matter. And if you're slow, like me, every race is like that. Like <laughs> I mean, I mean, every cross race was like that. Just like, oh, I'm going to go in here and try to improve on stuff uh, where yeah, there's what, what you know, you, no chance for a win. Right. Like what, what are you planning? Uh, how are you planning to fill that void, Ivy? Because uh, knowing you, uh, and you're fast and you're also hyper competitive and you like to, when you're on that course, like you like to place well. So what's going to fill that vacuum? Like, what are you planning to put into the forefront of your mind on focus? Is it like Nate mentioned, like, I, I think loosely, like, you know, skills work, Nate might like focus on corners or focus on that. And you're so good at that stuff, but I'm maybe, I don't know. What, what are you going to focus on? I feel like I'm good at that stuff now. Um, and that's actually what I'm going to focus on. I feel like last year, um, when I really struggled to get good results and thinking back on it, um, I really had a lot of growth to do in the technical ability side of things and not necessarily like the slow speed, really tricky, weird stuff that I'm good at carrying over from XC. It's like the really high speed, um, like weird, loose, gravelly or grassy stuff, the, the high speed cornering part of cross that I've really struggled in, um, just because I wasn't used to it. And, um, so that's really what I'm going to focus on, uh, this next block where I'm easing back into it and trying to realign my expectations. Like that's something that I've really worked at and I feel that I'm much better at. And I know that if I can focus on those moments of carrying speed and preventing myself from needing to scrub a bunch of speed and then like do these big accelerations and keep my effort more moderate, that will be a success in itself. And then once I feel better and I'm able to produce a little bit more power, all of it's going to click. So I just really need to focus on like the technical aspect and the fitness part has to be secondary for these next couple races. 
and I assume you'll be like playing it by ear in between the races too. Like you're not like forcing yourself into workouts or anything else right now in between no. races. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I should try to, a, um, do like, this a, is, Oh, go ahead. I was just say, I think this is a recipe for like a raging December Ivy. Like I hope <laughs> she's you're right. just yeah. so fast. <laughs> so oh, we can cut this out, John. And then like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The yeah. first season I didn't overtrain. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, what races are you going to be at Ivy? So then we can let uh podcast listeners know, so then they can come say hi or, or cheer for you when you're out on course, give you bacon, something like that. Yeah. I feel like, uh, it was so surprising last year to go to these East coast races and hear how many training road athletes and podcast listeners there were. And I super appreciate all the cheers and everything. So please do that again. And in Rochester next and like Trump city, all these races, like, please come give me a hug or a high five and say, what's up. Like I want to talk to you. Um, and it helps me a lot. So Rochester, uh, Charm City is in Baltimore the following weekend, and then I'll go to Trek Cup in Madison, um, Major Taylor in Indianapolis, and then both the following UCRs is in Massachusetts, um, and then in December, Nationals is in Hartford, Connecticut, and then I have an opportunity to go race in Europe um, mm. late December through January. So oh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah, that's going to be huge for me to do like real crossover there in Belgium, and man, I'm not going to... That's do right. well She's at all, be but in perfect form. I know. I know. Exactly. <laughs> like She'll somebody's win some huge race. Like. <laughs> I think it's yeah. going to be a. Um, I, so, I'm aware that it'll be a pretty. Uh, it'll be pretty harrowing mm. to go race race at that level, and somebody's got to hold up the back of the field. And I'm happy to do it for the learning experience <laughs> to just go be part of it. You know, so I'm excited for that. Awesome. Uh, we have a few questions that have to do with cyclocross for you. Uh, Joe says question for Ivy. Do you record data during cyclocross races? And if so, what hardware do you use? I don't, I don't do this because of, um, and I, I don't think a lot of pros do this either just because of the bike change nature across. You could have had units and power meters on both of your bikes, but then between the bike changes, you'd have to like splice that data together. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of athletes do have, heart rate info info on like a watch that they're recording, but ultimately like between power data and heart rate stuff, like it's okay info to have, but, um, power is such a menial part of your success in a race that I don't think that there's anything that I would do with that information. Anyways, it doesn't change the effort that I would do on the day or how I would change in my preparation for cross. So I don't record power during a race. Cyclocross is unique that way, right? Nate, like, yeah. I have a it's question crazy. though on that. Do Garmin watches, can you pair to two power meters at once? Because I always yeah. thought that they did. And then I just, I was wondering if that's a thing because if they have their I, heart rate paired on a watch, cause I see that the top pros do wear watches, uh, that they could get I, the data then. I don't think, I don't know if you can have both paired simultaneously, but you can have both devices paired to the head unit or the watch historically. So then that way, uh, when you're not you switching it back and bike, forth. And go back. Don't, I don't know about the They don't do it. I don't part, see them. Right? Yeah. It'd be They'll cool if you could record like, both, but that would make no sense too. Like how do you record that inside of your thing? So yeah. I think what, yeah, I, I don't, as Ivy said, pros don't do it. And I don't see a way that they could do it Yeah, it's without tricky. like two, two watches. <laughs> then There's splice also, it back later. I've looked at like my cross races, uh, before. Cause I mean, if I have to swap a bike, heaven knows my race is over anyway. Like I'm not like, <laughs> like, like, you know, 
But when I look at my power data and cross races, I'm always like, this is so underwhelming because there's so, there's so many, like, oh, yeah. I guess soft skills maybe isn't the right term for it. Maybe it is, but it's crazy. I don't know, Nate. Uh, I remember when you and I were like racing these cross races, the only time that we had decent power data was when it was like a 60 mile per hour wind day. So we're like pressing <laughs> into the wind. So like, you know, we had decent power, yeah. but otherwise it's really low compared to what you're used to because you're, there's so many other things that determine your speed on that course. And they're, I feel like they, they govern more than in other forms of racing, any other form of racing I've done. You know, I think I had, um, 300 watt FTP and my normalized power was 222, which is 0.75. <laughs> and I've never gone as hard in my life for like a 45 <laughs> minute race. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. right? Yeah. It's exactly. all out. Just like wanting to throw up <laughs> and it's like, I did an endurance ride. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about doing some cyclocross. I have the crux from like uh, six years ago, maybe uh, seven years ago. Still is just fine. Works great. So, um, and it's UCI legal tires on there. So throw some sealant in and get on that thing. And I might, uh, give some, some cross races. Yeah. It'd be fun. Really just do it for Ivy. So, Mm. uh, another question from Claire. Claire says, I think I'm just making up a question because I'm that extra and in love with the podcast. Yay. Uh, Thanks Claire. (laughs) Um, she says the way everyone talks about training is so good. And it helped me see that my part-time bike shop job, bike shop job, uh, to get food parts, discount, et cetera, just wasn't worth it for me. I wasn't able to focus on my training for gravel and cross as much. So uh, I'm actually. So I feel about Trainer Road. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> no, Don't quit, Nate. I'm no. just joking. <laughs> that's what we all it feel about like, our jobs, though, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's getting the way of training. I'm glad that we're enlightening you, Claire. Um, yeah. so, you don't uh, need money, really, like yeah. <laughs> rice in a van. <laughs> It sounds like if it kind of sounds like it was a supplemental job that she had in place to get the discounts and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so she says, I'm leaving that job so I can spend Sundays messing around on dirt, largely doing single track on my cyclocross bike. Being a larger FTW rider is not always super fun, but I know I'm in the best shape of my life right now. So the talk around being focused on food, stress, and other things in life have been really amazing. So uh, the actual question, Claire says, is what are some of your favorite handling skill practice drills? I struggle with the cross mount, meaning like I I assume like flying mounts and dismounts, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Though now I'm able to do it from a walk. As I recover 11 hours of my time, I want to include a skill session weekly. So 11 hours that she would have been dedicating to work. So Ivy, this is directly in your wheelhouse. And I, I feel like I can't really speak on this one because as I've tried to go do flying mounts again, I had realized that I reintroduced the stutter step. So I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, what tips <laughs> do you have for Claire in this case? Yeah, this is good. This is relevant because I, I just, uh, led an impromptu clinic, helped a few riders in town, um, including my mom who has been like such so a cool. hardcore roadie her whole life. And, uh, there's so much good gravel, gravel riding in Montana, and so we convinced her to get a cross bike. I thought she'd like the cross bike better because she's so comfortable with road geo and it was a little bit closer to what she was used to and still had a bunch of tire clearance and was very capable and she loves it. And then went to this clinic and I had to teach her who very uncomfortable with remounting all super foreign. So I'm, I was well prepared for this question. Um, nice. but, uh, apart from, so, so go to skills practice stuff. So apart from, um, just taking a lot of time to learn your limits off road, like what I was talking about with cross racing and learning that kind of like high speed cornering limit is so tricky. 
And it just takes time. There's no like crash course into learning um, what comfortably cornering maneuvering your bike at speed feels like other than just like sheer volume of practicing. Um, so that, that just takes time, but Claire is not alone in struggling with remounts. So when specifically I'll focus on that and when helping folks with tips to do so, the most constructive piece of advice I can give is to really, especially in eliminating that hop step that a lot of people encounter when they're first learning how to remount, um, the most significant thing you can do to help with that is really push your bike forward um, when you're remounting. So it almost feels like you're horizontal when you're doing so. And in order to facilitate that, you have to take a really big final step before remounting. And doing all this at speed and not walking will really help. What do you mean horizontal when you're mounting? So like if you look at a picture of someone remounting, like doing a really good remount on the cross bike, it almost looks like they're in like a Superman flying position. So instead of a up and down, you're jumping onto your bike vertically. It's more like you're running forward and your weight is forward and your hands and bars are forward. And it almost looks like you're, um, you're already kind of laying forward and swinging your leg over versus jumping up and landing down on the saddle. That sounds painful. I've seen, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's yeah. like a leap in Lars Vanderhaar. I, I always think of him whenever I think of that. He's a smaller rider. I don't know if he rides a slightly larger chassis or maybe it's like a brand limitation there or something, but he really exemplifies like the flat, the Superman thing. Like when he right. kicks off to get on that bike, he isn't trying to jump up high over the top of it. It's almost like he's letting his legs fly behind him to get on the bike in a strange way. I don't know if that makes exactly. sense. Exactly. And it takes a lot of that pressure of feeling like you're landing on your saddle really hard. But a big part of that too is being accustomed to finding the saddle once you're remounting. And that's also really hard to learn. And so something that I had Tam and some of the newer, my mom, sorry, and some of the newer folks that were new to remounting, something that I told them to work on, I noticed that when they get on their bike and when a lot of folks that like ride road bikes get on their bike to roll, they swing their leg over, put their foot in the cleat, and then sit up on your saddle. So you're not doing the work of finding your saddle before you get in the pedals. And you can just do that when you're standing too, like leaving from a stoplight, leaving from the coffee shop, leaving from your house. You can practice from a standpoint, swinging your leg over the bike and getting onto the saddle first before you clip in. And just the act of doing that, it really is. And just the act of doing that helps you in that muscle memory, acquaint yourself with where the saddle is in relation to your body and the rest of the bike while you're moving and in the air and while you get rolling before you find the cleats. And just doing that will help that practice once you get comfortably remounting and once you're ready to add some speed into it, it will, it will help you feel more comfortable for sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good tip. I found that when I watch you Ivy and other pros, when they're remounting, it seems like that getting used to it in that way that you're talking about, it almost develops a technique where you almost find it with your thigh a little bit, like the side of your leg. So you don't just land directly on your pubic bone or on Mm -hmm. your, or on your sit bones or anything like that. Instead, it's almost like when your leg is swinging over, it starts to make contact with that saddle with like the upper portion of your thigh. And then it makes it really easy to just kind of just slide right into position onto the saddle. Right. And that speaks to really how horizontal this motion is. Versus the jumping up and landing down vertically motion that some people mm. think is synonymous with remounting. It really isn't. It's more of a horizontal, like slide into place motion. How do you cut out the stutter step? 
And what I mean by that is when you go to remount, you kind of do a skip thing. Um, yeah. So let's say you go to remount and you toss your, go to toss your leg up and over the bike. You keep that downward leg. You kind of keep it dangling and do a quick little tap halfway in between. And I've, whenever I do that, it just kills my momentum. It slows me down yep. a little bit and makes me have to work harder to get momentum back. This can be isolated in one thing, and it is your final step before you remount. So if you if you don't take a big step and you're pushing your bike forward and trying to do this Superman horizontal body motion, but your feet are way far back because you didn't take a big final step, there's no other choice for you than to take this like little stutter step to keep your body moving in the same momentum. Mm-hmm. So the on, the best way to fix that, it can be isolated in. It is your big. It is it is your final step before you remount. It has to be a big jump step. Got it. So I need to press off way harder with that downward leg uh, when I get into position to get on the bike. Cool. Mm -hmm. I dig it. Uh, Okay. Mike's question says, I'm a longtime podcast listener and trainer road user. This question is for Ivy. I'm mostly a mountain biker. This is my episode. I'll be right back. Yeah. Uh, Mike says, I'm mostly a mountain biker and gravel rider and currently training for a local gravel race, my A race in late September on a climbing road race plan. And there are some long climbs in this race. In the past few years, I've tended to use the cross-country Olympic or marathon mountain bike plan, so lots of VO2 work. Now I'm doing more threshold and sweet spot in my current plan. I'm thinking about doing some cyclocross races this fall. Excuse me. And I've only done a couple in the past. Not enough to be any good at them. Join the club. Mike, you and I. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Given my current focus and my training history, what can I do to improve my capabilities for cyclocross racing? And I believe when... So there's the skill side of things, but this is kind of an interesting one because we're talking about fitness as well. Mike says, I realize I won't be optimized for cyclocross with the current plan I'm on. Just wondering if I can do stuff, whether it's fitness training or skills training that will help. Uh, thanks for any help. Uh, you and, or, and all you all are awesome at trainer road and way better cyclist because of the podcast and TR sweet. Uh, good to hear Mike. So I, he's like steady state diesel right now is what Mike is working on. And now Mike is in a position where they're looking at building up punchy power and we right. can cover the skill stuff later. Let's talk about the fitness side. I mean, that's honestly the best way to do it though. Right. Ivy. I mean, it's better than going the other way. I know. I disagree with Mike and thinking that their current focus and training does not, hasn't set them up for doing, for performing well in cycle cross. It totally does. Um, and you know, uh, so much of those big accelerations that we think are synonymous with cycle cross actually take place when you're making mistakes and scrubbing speed where you don't need to. And really like the less number of big accelerations that you do in cycle cross, the better. So that more like steady state that you can maintain in your power in a cross race, the better your result is going to be. So I do think from a fitness perspective, Mike is prepared pretty well to try cycle cross. Maybe if they're new and don't feel like their skills are there, they might have to do a bunch of accelerations and they might suffer a little bit, but they've done the work to be, to be there fitness wise. We saw this at cross Vegas when John Keegan and I wrote it <laughs> and the difference between AP and NP average power and normalized power. Um, if there's a large difference, you could, it's like really on and off really punchy. We all raced the same course. Keegan was almost the same, which was insane. <laughs> yeah. Like I told you, I was 222 to like, it, I don't know what my, mine was incredibly different. I forget exactly what it was. Mine and then John was in the middle, but yours was closer to mine. Mm-hmm. You were way punchier than you need to be. But Keegan, who is, we all know Keegan's amazing, 
very, very close. And it just blows my mind that yeah. his skills were so much higher, like to Ivy's point, that you didn't have to do all these accelerations. And then it's a lot easier to race that way. If mm-hmm. When you watch the pro athletes dismount and remount or come into anything, they won't like uh, amateurs sometimes charge into something too fast, like a turn. They'll charge in really fast. And then what they'll do is they'll force a bad line or it'll make them have to pivot a little harder. They won't hit their apex right. They won't do something. And then they lose momentum coming out of that turn. Or when you come into barriers, they might try to go as fast as they can into the barriers, but then that makes them stutter step once they get off to jump over them and they lose all that speed. And then once they feel that they've lost that speed, they panic and they're like, I got to get back up to speed. And it's this vicious cycle that starts to hit. Whereas if you watch the pro athletes, they're so smooth, like so smooth. It's amazing when they get back onto their bike and they get down, you'll even see them try to time it with like a slight little downhill or an undulation instead of getting onto it when it's slightly uphill. Sometimes they might run a few more steps to get on than an amateur would because an amateur is just panicked thinking, I want to get back on the bike as fast as I can. Whereas the pros, like, I just want to maintain as much momentum as I can and be as smooth as I can. Um, I feel like with having steady state power and that mindset, you're actually in a really good spot, Mike, to kind of like punch above your previously set expectations that you have for how you've been, how you've done in cyclocross before. Um, if you put that together and the punchiness also comes really quickly when you have a really solid foundation of aerobic fitness, because remember those repeated hard efforts are only anaerobic until your anaerobic capacity is drained. And therefore, after that, you're working with aerobic capacity. So, and that's going to be in a slightly different way, but still pulling from the same tank of all that aerobic capacity that you've built with all the sweet spot work, all the tempo work and sustained threshold work that you've been doing uh, recently in the specialty phase for your plan. So, so that's, I feel like they're kind of in a good spot. Um, Nate, do you have anything else to, to add on to this one? No, I yeah. feel like I just suck at cross. It's hard. <laughs> I, I, the tire, I like it. It's just hard. Get really comfortable with your bike. Like I, when I am, yeah, of best, course. Yes. I know. <laughs> it's hard that, to I know do that. though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. Oh, no. sorry, Nate. I, that sounded like I was telling you to do that. Uh, I didn't mean that. I mean, as a general point of advice there, it's funny how a small amount of increase in general comfort on the bike has a profound effect on your ability out on a cross course. Uh, Nate mentioned, it was really cool when you, uh, raced cross Well, uh, one of the seasons you raced cross, you went over to Sacramento and you did a lot of their races when they were pretty big and they were really muddy. And I remember you saying that you actually had a good time at like the, the muddy ones and it's better and I was just thinking about like, wow, that's not the Nate that I would have remembered before. That would probably would have terrified you having slippery conditions and everything else. And, but you slower. had built up that level. Oh, it's slower. So lower speed. That's, yeah. That's why it wasn't scary. And then when you fell in mud, like it doesn't, it's like a bounce house. Yeah. Like, oh, there's no consequences. <laughs> so that the fear was gone where fast grass, that's the scary, like the Reno one, uh, we're crossing yeah. were, and there's like, you know, you can go 20 miles per hour on grass and then fall and it's hard grass that, uh, that's not fun. Yeah. I, I, the getting comfort on your bike is as Ivy said, a product of just spending more time doing it, but spend time going slow. I know that sounds, uh, silly, but I feel like I'm best on my bike when I'm training well. Yes. But then also when I'm riding my bike with my son, which usually looks like we're in a cul-de-sac and we're just like riding around in circles and talking 
And then what I'm doing when he's riding around in circles is I'm usually just like track standing and sitting there and trying to see if I can hold my balance without, you know, touching the ground. And those silly little games that you might play on the bike, like slow races with your friend, like you're at one point and then the other side of the field is, or like 10 feet away is the finish line. And the last person to cross the finish line wins. It's all those silly things that really just, they're fun to do on the bike. It's a fun way to spend a nice evening. It's not going to incur a ton of training stress. It's going to be relatively recuperative. And it's something that you can do that's just going to boost your confidence on the bike all the way, you know, for across the spectrum for cyclocross, but also if, even if you're a time trialist, it's going to help, you know, it's really, really good stuff. Is, uh, is Simon available for hire for skills work? <laughs> yes. His rates are high. His rates are okay. high. So yeah. He's coming out. <laughs> yeah. He'll talk your ear off. He's an awesome talker. So yeah. Michael um, feels so underbiked too, coming from doing marathon MTB and like XCO, he's going to feel so underbiked, um, being on 32s or 33s. And so anyone, like I encourage them to just like any easy day, like you said, slow speed stuff to go do it on single track and do it on technically demanding rides otherwise, but at your slow speeds that you can really work on comfort. Totally. And I have seen really bad technical riders do really well when they ride within their technical limits, but have really good fitness. So Mike, you're in a great spot. Like, um, you know, fitness reigns supreme overall. And uh, especially with all the work you've been doing on that sustained work, you're probably just an aerobic animal. So that's a, that's a good place to be. Uh, Charles, Nate, this one is, uh, this one's, I think in your wheelhouse. Sort of. Ish. <laughs> Why does TSS drop during a workout? For an example, coming off of a threshold or VO2 max interval into a recovery interval, sometimes the TSS can actually fall by a point. And I assume what they're doing is they might be looking at when you're using the trainer road, when you're using trainer road, you can hit a down arrow and see additional metrics when you're training, which is cool. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can get like additional insight. And one of those is TSS. So, uh, this doesn't affect training or anything, but I'm wondering if this is meant to happen. And if so, why? I mean, if you're doing more work, Nate, it does seem weird that it would go down, right? Yeah. You think it would accumulate every time. And mm -hmm. I'm, I remember first seeing this maybe in 2014 and our CTO at the time, math degree, super smart guy. Uh, he explained it to me and I don't fully understand it, but I'll try <laughs> to explain it here is that. So TSS is relative to normalized power and your normalized power can drop. If you're doing, um, intervals where you go like from really high to really low quickly, it drops for just a little second. And the way that we display TSS in a workout is it is rounded. So it might be from a 12.5 to a 12.4 where 12.5 would be 13, 12.4 would be less. Um, or even, you know, 12.51 to 12.49 could be very, very small inside of there. But the way that the math works on that, that is possible for it to happen. Um, and it doesn't really impact your overall TSS and all averages out in the, in the future. And it doesn't ever happen outside because you don't ever do the, I mean, it could, but the real structure where you start, you actually have to start an interval very quickly and then be sustained and then go off of that interval very quickly. And maybe some of the forum who's better at math can give examples of this, but it's mathematically possible. And that's why it happens. And it's not a bug because I thought it was a bug for a while. And he had to sit down, and explain it to me. And I was like, I trust you. You have a master's degree in math. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's usually how my responses would yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you. again, it doesn't do anything and it's not a, you're not doing anything wrong. And also though, uh, side note, but progression levels, right. That the TS in general doesn't 
isn't going to matter. I think this is more of a, or it does TSS does matter, but not as much as sometimes we give it credit for. And, uh, uh, although I think this question is more of a, like, just, this is interesting. Why does this happen? Yeah. Especially intra workout. Right. I mean, like that's, this is a good example of like a metric not being, um, or not into it. Just the change in the metric doesn't indicate something about you getting less fit or doing something else. Metrics can be tricky that way. Right. And the TSS from an endurance ride and something with a lot of intensity and a different duration can look pretty similar at times. And that's why I personally don't look very closely at TSS and look more closely at something like progression levels that speaks more effectively to the work you're doing within a workout. Um, when TSS can be so broadly applied in the same way for something that is so different from a training perspective. This is why I don't really put a lot of weight into TSS. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. William's question. I had to go to Dr. Podlegar for this one. Uh, says fueling in the heat. I've been training my gut to handle more and it has improved my racing tremendously. Like you all have been saying, it's like cheating. It does feel like that, right? When you go from not fueling well to then fueling well, it's like, oh my gosh, especially the latter half of your workouts, the end of the race. Yeah. It's amazing. To finish a race and not feel starving or sick is awesome. Yes. Yeah. It's the best. Um, so as soon as a race is in hot conditions, however, it all goes out the window. Nothing wants to digest. It just sits in my gut and soon I'm feeling sick. And then eventually I bonk. So my question, will heat adaptations sort this out or do I need to specifically train my gut in the heat? I've tried more water, but I end up over hydrating. I think I know the timing of this question is not so good for the U S but summer is now starting here in SA. So I don't know if they mean South Africa or South America, um, or South Australia, who knows, but Southern hemisphere, I assume. So William, great question. It's one that a lot of people have had, and there isn't a lot of, uh, really good science. that's as specific as we would want it to be for this. So I reached out to Dr. Tim Poligar on this one. Uh, he check out the science of getting faster podcast. We've done a couple, a few episodes with him. He's fantastic. Uh, he's like, he's the carb doctor, if you will. So, uh, he says, firstly, in the heat, the carbohydrate and thus glycogen use goes up. So that means that when we're in hot conditions, we actually use more glycogen. <clears throat> so you could almost argue the, forgive me. <clears throat> Hopefully you can cut that out, Maxine. Uh, cutting back in. So that could argue the fact that maybe in hot conditions, you actually want to increase your, your carbo- carbohydrate intake. But here's the interesting part. Dr. Podlegar says, unfortunately, the efficiency of ingested carbohydrates goes down. So in other words, our body doesn't take carbohydrate and transform it into glycogen and fuel for the muscles as efficiently in the heat. However, we need more carbohydrate when we're working hard in the heat because our muscles are working harder. So he says, this is very likely because of reduced absorption, whether this improves over time with heat acclimation is a question that I'm currently working on and will likely be able to shed some more light on in a couple of years. But my guess would be that this should improve with being adapted to this. So Dr. Podlegar's uh, far more educated than uh, what I would be able to provide guess is that this is something that with heat adaptation, it's, it does seem likely that it could improve uh, with that. Here's some interesting stuff that he says. Also in the heat, the sweat rate will probably always be higher than the fluid absorption rate. Note, he's not saying just intake rate, but fluid absorption rate. There's intake and then what we actually absorb. 
So overhydration is actually very difficult to achieve. And when he's talking about overhydration, he's talking about perfusion and utilization of this liquid throughout your body rather than just peeing it out, right? Yet one of those things that could, there are one of the things that could help is to use some sort of hyperhydration before exercise so that there is more plasma volume available and thus less limitation to the perfusion of the gut. And that's something that we know about heat adaptation. One of the things that happens is you get more plasma volume, right? Uh, and that's one of the reasons that you can cool yourself off better, but also it's one of the reasons that you could perhaps maintain better levels of hydration. And when he's talking about hyperhydration, that's like sodium loading. Uh, we've talked about that on the podcast plenty of times, right? Nate, uh, pre-event sodium mm-hmm. loading, making sure you take in plenty. Uh, so the next bit, uh, he says, uh, a wild guess would also be to experiment with vasodilators such as nitrates as they should work throughout the body including the perfusion of the intestines and could therefore perhaps cause more carbohydrate absorption. So super interesting thinking that nitrates are beet and how that's commonly taken is like beetroots, uh, whether that's in a powdered form or you are juicing the beets and, and putting the beetroots in there, whatever else. Uh, but if you're taking those, those are vasodilators and that could possibly help you absorb more carbohydrate. It's just crazy. I mean, it, I guess it does make sense that it would all be interconnected, but what I'm getting from that one, in this case, William, is the fact that yes, heat adaptation is likely to help you absorb more carbohydrate in hot conditions, that you're not going crazy, that it is harder to (laughs) take in carbohydrate in hot conditions. Um, but once again, just go for adaptation. If you want to try work in some vasodilators, um, like beetroots or any sort of nitrates like that. So Nate, you've experienced this, right? Where in hot conditions, it's way tougher. Yeah. Or just hot liquid too is harder to ingest than cold liquid too. Yeah. So, I mean, having cold liquid Sorry. does help and also <laughs> cools your uh, core temperature off of having like a slurry or just ice cold water. Yeah. Wasn't that, uh, who were we talking to at Kona one year when they were talking about a study where somebody, they had like a, it was a slushies that they were taking in and it was yeah. like, it made a pretty profound difference in their core temp compared to just like cold drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drinking like blended ice, like a, Icy or margarita, but without the alcohol, that's the kind of consistency. Um, but be able to drink that in a really hot condition does lower the core body temperature. And then I would guess would also improve, uh, absorption then of carbohydrates. Cause your, if your core temperature lowers, then these things don't impact as much. Yeah. I'm curious to know like what are all these other things like core temperature and what your hydration is like leading into the event. So like sodium loading beforehand, what what William's setup was like for all those other things that could have had an impact on this, you know? Totally. I've noticed a huge difference with sodium loading, uh, prior to like before. So the way that I did that at Cape Epic is every evening I took one of, uh, precision hydrations, 1500 milligram things, and I would drop it into water and I would drink that water taking 1500 milligrams. And I woke up in the morning, I did that again. And then, cause I knew that throughout the day, I would be sweating a ton and losing a ton of salt. And even though I was taking in like darn near, I was taking in, I think 1200 milligrams of sodium. If you add it up because I was taking capsules and then I also had sodium in my bottles. So in with the carb mix, even though I was taking that in, I'm still like, I'd finish the race and I'd just be like, give me pretzels or like potato, you know, (laughs) I was like craving salt. My body just needed it. And I don't know if, however, I'm absolutely incapable of tying that into the ability to tolerate higher levels of carbohydrate. I don't know on that level, but it sure makes me feel better before races. Um, I think it's a a smart thing to do. I even do it to a lesser degree when it's 
not not as hot. Like if it's not super hot, I still do it because it makes me feel so much better. I don't think it's just a heat adaptation thing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the things that like we kind of separate it and we're like for hot conditions, I'll do this, but for normal conditions, I will not. It's kind of, that's really similar thought to when I'm racing, I will take in carbohydrate, but when I'm training, I will not, you know, uh, a really mm-hmm. common perspective and you want to train yourself in all aspects, uh, to be ready for race day when, you know, even when it comes to nutrition. And I don't think it's needed for, um, every, every ride, just ones where you're concerned about fluid or if you're extra dehydrated leading into it. Sure. And you don't want to just be taking in a ton of salt outside of that too. Like this is like, you know, pre-competition, pre-training sort of stuff. You don't want to just be hanging out on the salt with the salt or on the couch with the salt shaker. Um, yeah. Like I won't do that before endurance rides or, um, recovery days or anything like that. Sure. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, anyways, cool to hear from Dr. Podligar on that. That would be a really cool study though, right. To see like how a heat affects things. And he's also constantly doing core temperature testing. Um, uh, so yeah, he's in the right spot to do it. It'll be cool. Uh, any thoughts on that one before we move on to Sandy's question? Nope. Cool. Nope. Sandy says, Hey friends, you feel like friends, even though we've never met. That's sweet, Sandy. Um, same ditto. I just finished my first stage race. I did three days of the single track six race, the Chad plan. I believe Chad was the one that's, that suggested that originally he did the, he was like, this just needs to be half. I need to pick my days or go every other day. Um, (laughs) I'm really happy with how it all went. I listened to every one of your podcasts about that race, as well as episodes on pacing and tips for stage races. So first of all, thank you. Having the knowledge from those podcast episodes really helped. I fueled myself really well on the bike with carbohydrates and hydration, but was surprised how hard it was to eat off the bike. I was quite hungry, but felt full and sick after only a few bites and suffered with poor digestion, bloating, gas, and nausea by day three. I then felt stressed about my inability to eat much, knowing I needed to refuel. Jesus, though, it's the vicious cycle. Nate, you're nodding your head. (laughs) I'm going to say, John, you get this at Cape Epic? Yeah. Inability to eat? like. Yeah. When I read yeah. this question, I totally thought about John forcing himself to eat rice and eggs and how miserable <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, Nate at Leadville with a giant bowl of cereal. Like, oh, I think you were horrible. like three, bo- three boxes deep of cereal or something at that point that afternoon. No. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Sandy says, I want to do the whole six days next year. So I wonder what tips you had for eating off the bike. One of the pros of the race st- posted a picture to social media about taking Gaviscon and the caption said stage race problems. <laughs> so I assume this is common. Uh, I, but I don't even know where to start to remedy it. Thanks in advance from Sandy. Can we have Nate kick this one off? Nate, uh, you're, yeah. you're the. Wait, what, what is, is Gaviscon? It's heartburn a, basically, relief. Yeah. Heartburn relief. So indigestion mm-hmm. relief of some sort of, uh, of some sort. I've seen like people take Pepto-Bismol during stage races too. Not on the bike. Uh, that was. <laughs> That'd be really rough, but, uh, off the bike, you know, in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, so you def- are affectionately, I can like, uh, they say be a garbage can, not a garbage can't. And <laughs> Nate, <laughs> you inspire me to put food down the hatch and you have an incredible ability to do it. What advice would you have to Sandy? Yeah. And I've done it different ways. And then I'm like, we've done stage races where we stay in the same place as Keegan and Keegan is the only person I've seen. He either it's questionable if he out eats me, but he at least matches me and he might out eat me, uh, because I drink a whole bunch more juice than he does. Uh, <laughs> one, so I can, we can talk about the experience too, the things that I see him. Cause I definitely, whenever I'm around any pro, I pay attention to every single thing that they eat. Um, so Leadville, what I did wrong 
leading up to that is I did too many whole foods of like sweet potatoes and um, what else did I do? I forget, but there was like, it was very like beans, uh, black beans, yeah, black beans, brown rice, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that made it the extra fiber away from racing. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's going to be my big point is away from racing. There is one stuff. Stage race food is a different thing. And (laughs) it weighed it so hard to hit that 800 grams of carbs a day that I was trying to hit. It was almost impossible. Um, and I was like making myself sick. Other stage races, I, I <laughs> posted watching. on Instagram. I know. <laughs> um, it's on my Instagram that there is tr.nate that I'll do like just French fries, I'll air fry French fries, or just a lot of juice, some r- white rice, really simple stuff. That's so much easier. Cereal. Cereal is huge. Low fiber cereal. Yeah, Keegan does that too. Pancakes, uh, simple pasta, savory with a little bit of stuff. So I would stay away from the vegetables and even fruit during this time, which sounds horrible. And some people are like, oh my gosh, you should never do that. Again, this is only for a couple days for the stage race. Um, sports drinks, juice, so easy to get stuff down. Um, some people do like hard candies. Uh, I'm trying to think. Really, for me, cereal is the huge thing. Beer, no beer. Uh, <laughs> cereal is the easy thing because you can get it most anywhere. And then there's different types of cereals, but like the... The sugary, delicious, easy to digest stuff like get that. And um, you want the, the, you know, the glycogen to be replenished. And again, this is what we see. Keegan mixes cereals because he eats so much cereal. He like he'll do like this plus this. And he like tops it with another like fruity pebbles or something to get the yeah. crunch on it. Sometimes I see a new cereal and I take a picture of it in the grocery aisle and send it to him like this thing's crazy. It's like some let's like Oreo cookie dough Reese's Captain Crunch or something weird. I never would have expected it existed. And then he's like, yeah, I ate that last week. Like, (laughs) he's just like, he's like the cereal connoisseur. Yeah. But you know, when you're talking about like rice too, like white rice, don't go for brown rice or anything else like that. Like you want to, in other words, during a stage race, simple and quick, right. Is like Mm -hmm. what you want to want to go for. I think maybe the distinction you're trying to make is between kind of denser, more complex carbs versus Mm -hmm. like easy, lighter stuff. That's quicker to digest. Mm-hmm. Is that and easily pa- exactly and easily pa- palatable? They're mm-hmm. all probably processed. All the things that you say you don't want to do for general health, um, because you know this this strategy gets it so you can overeat the calories. Like you can eat a ton of calories with this strategy, uh, among other things with micronutrients and stuff like that. But that's why this strategy is good between stage races. And as far as I understand it, doing this for three, four, five days is not going to like give you cancer or dramatically change your body composition. You're just going to race better. This, uh, one interesting point, and we're going to cover this in the next question about, I am certain that the gut distress that you felt, Sandy, uh, hopefully you were adapted to taking in however many grams of carbs per hour that you were taking in. And you were used to the nutrition that you also ate during the race. Assuming that's the case, you weren't getting gut distress because you took in too much. Uh, that's, it's like, darn near impossible to do that, especially on a stage race, like single track six, it's really, really difficult. You're burning a lot with that race. And then also keep in mind with the stage race, we've talked about this on a previous episode, the afterburn effect in the sense that in our minds, we compartmentalize things to be really neat and clean. And they're not always like that. We think that, okay, I'm done pedaling my bike. Therefore I am dropped back down to my basal metabolic rate and I no longer am burning calories. 
However, your body doesn't operate that way. It's going to continue to burn more calories, be at an elevated rate, and that will taper off over time, but it stays that way after your workouts. And the reason for that is because it's got a lot of work to do after it's worked really hard on getting everything in process so it can recover and starting that recovery. When you're in a stage race, you kind of never, I mean, you probably do hit baseline, but in my mind, I envision it differently to motivate me to eat. I envision in my mind that after I do all that work, that my body's just working so hard in between then and the next stage to be able to recover and get myself ready to go. So I need to fuel that work as well. It's not just the work on the bike, but my body's working really hard in between the stages. So that's why I need to eat a bunch. But when you mentioned the fact that you felt sick and you didn't, and it was hard to get a few bites down, there's a couple reasons that I've bumped into this with, uh, and maybe Ivy, you've had a few too, that you can share with this. Um, in most cases, it's actually because I didn't fuel enough on the bike. And that's why my gut is really messed up because all that's left is like maybe like, you know, electrolyte mix and that's it. And my stomach is just cramping up because it needs something. Um, it's, that's more common than me eating too much, uh, for sure. So if, if that's the, and also dehydration is a fantastic way to make it so that it's really tough for you to be able to tolerate and, and process and digest foods as that's well. What I was going to say dehydration. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that Sandy says that they fuel themselves well on the bike with carbohydrates and hydration. I wonder if that's really true because the times that I've experienced this and finished a race and know that I need to eat and have like a visceral nauseous reaction when I try to, it's 100% been because I didn't hydrate properly exclusively. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, um, when they say that they are hydrating appropriately, if that's actually the case. If I was doing single track six, I would be wanting to take in like at the very least 750 milliliters of liquid that would have sodium solution and carbohydrate solution in it at all times. Like I would want to, at the end of the day, to make sure that I, at the very least, have 90 grams an hour, and I would be used to that in terms of carbs, um, but likely I would want to be closer to 110 to 120, and then I would also want to be shooting to 1,200 milligrams or more of sodium every hour that I'm taking in, <clears throat> and I would still know that when I'm done with that, I would be dehydrated. It's like John we don't realize how much we lose, even in cold conditions. You still lose so much liquid, right? For context, can you tell listeners how many hours you feel like these stages would take a normal athlete at single track sticks? Yeah. Uh, well, 19. <laughs> Nate's eyes got huge. <laughs> 19. So that they Go have context them. of, you know, you're saying yeah. how many milliliters is, you know, how many hours. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, for most people, they're going to be like four hour stages, um, somewhere around four to five, probably. Uh, sometimes they'll be a bit shorter than that, but that's what you're looking at. And the the fact is like, Listen back to the podcast we recorded with Matteo Jorgensen. He said that he takes in 1,700 milligrams an hour of sodium and 160 grams of carbs an hour on the bike. And he knows that there's absolutely, and he has a really high FTP. So Matteo is a bit different than, than you and I, but he knows that there is no way that he's even close to keeping up with it. So when he's done afterward, he has to eat a ton. And before he eats a ton and he drinks a ton. So this is more likely a case of depletion, I bet. But one other thing too, is sometimes it can be a palate thing with what you were eating is super sweet after you've had a ton of sweet stuff, or maybe it's really salty. And for some reason you just really don't want salty stuff. 
you're probably going to be in a pretty, like a hypersensitive state post stage. And that sort of stuff can really throw you off. But over time, I think you'll get really good at becoming like Nate being the garbage can <laughs> instead of the can't. <laughs> and you'll just be like, it's just fuel. I'm just getting it down the hatch. Um, at least I have, I'm, I was really picky and I pride myself now on not being particularly picky at all. Um, I can get down food because I know there's kind of like a higher purpose it fulfills and it seems to overdrive something like a uh, palate fatigue, uh, post-race. I have this almost every day now with Adderall cause it makes you not hungry and I want to get enough protein in cause I'm focusing on strength training right now and pro tip this fair life, um, fair life protein shakes, they're shelf stable and they come in like three versions, a 26 gram with sugar free, a 26 gram with 26 grams of sugar and then a 42 grams that's sugar free. But, um, after a race, like the, the 26, 26, they're so easy to drink. They're not that big. You could have a few of those and that could be a nice way to get some protein and, uh, carbs into your diet. When two after a race, sometimes eating meat is also hard, even though sometimes it's savory and it's good, but other times it's like, Oh geez, I don't want to do this. And for athletes that, um, don't want meat, this is made with milk, but it's also lactose free. I'm lactose intolerant. I have no issues stomach with it. And I know other people have dairy issues, but for those who don't, it, it is a, it's a pretty cool choice. And they're actually in another pro tip. They're in airports now around the country. And a lot of times, yeah, I, I get them, um, between flights or something because, you know, you don't want to have the just fried food or something like that. You can get some of this and get a salad or something like that. And you can get a pretty good, uh, macro thing and be tasty yeah. and healthy. That. What in terms of what you eat in between the stages too, Nate said, keep it really simple. And that's, that's really, uh, that can't, I can't hammer that home enough. It's really important because it's easy to like, if you really like spicy things and you're used to that, it still doesn't matter during a stage race It's probably not a time to have super spicy food. Uh, if you're into like really strong, like acidic flavors, stuff like that, probably not the best time for it. You want to keep not just the carbohydrates, uh, to be simple, but you also like, or, or quick digesting, I should say, but you also just want to keep the flavor profiles pretty medium, <laughs> you know, like it's not going to be your best eating. It isn't going to be a five-star experience through the stages, but you know what? It's going to make you feel good and race well. And that's John, the sing- important part. A single track six. How much did you like? I made you guys spaghetti with red sauce. Yeah. I think that was your favorite meal. It was so simple. It took like oh, yeah. eight minutes, but it was so savory. Yeah. 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 And it's like, cause that's all you need, right? Ivy, like after a bunch of sugar and stuff, like you just want some salt and easy things, easy things to make too, I guess is another big point. Like you just made it. Right. Doing a bunch of meal prep for a super complex and flavor rich meal after a big race like that is so unrealistic just canned red sauce is so good after a hard day like that (laughs) Mm -hmm. i should go back and try to calculate the amount of rice and eggs and cereal that i had during cape epic because it was that was basically all i ate that and peanut butter and jellies like in between the the stages you know because sometimes it was just easier to take in one or the other but i basically just ate those and potato chips and that was (laughs) what got me through more or less you know so Yeah, exactly. Not, not typical health, but that'll help. So Sandy recapping this, uh, is make sure you're not depleted, even though you may think that you're doing enough, you're probably not. And we're going to get into more of that in the next question here, the last one. Um, but then also keep your food extremely simple, find things that are kind of like pleasing and, and manageable to eat. They don't have to have a really strong flavor. So then that way you can just get it down the hatch and it's okay. 
Also try to eat as soon as you can. And sometimes when you're dehydrated like that, you have to push through that initial wave of nausea that you have when you try to eat. Cause if you don't, then it's just going to self-perpetuate and just hold you back even further. It's a tricky thing. So fuel re- very well on the bike beforehand and during those are some good tips. Um, last question from Greg it says quick, thank Craig. you and shout out to all of you. I found a love for cycling because of you and I'm grateful for it. Five stars on every platform I can give them. Thanks, Greg. That means that he's been on Spotify. If you're listening to this right now and you haven't done it yet, go to Spotify. Rate five Craig, stars. right? Oh no, it is Greg. Sorry. Greg. Yeah. I've been catching up on episodes and loved hearing the episode with Hannah and Keegan, especially their talk about fueling. And my question is if that is transferable to someone who isn't putting out the power they are. My FTP is a lot lower than theirs. It's 219 at the moment. And when I'm out for three hours, my normalized power might only be 140 watts or less. Should I be feeling the same way as these pros and just take in as much as I can tolerate? I have a pretty good stomach and can tolerate a bunch of SIS gels or science and sport gels. Uh, for an hour would be about 360 calories and 88 grams of carbs. So what do I look to do or what do I look at to decide what is excessive? Even on the lower end, I'm doing close to 400 kilojoules per hour. So I guess I'd still be at a deficit, but it seems like a lot for my power. My RPE is high and it feels hard for me, but the actual work is much lower. I'll say that on long rides, I really suffer from tight quads and cramps, signs of underfueling, which I normally attribute to going too hard at the start. Thanks again so much and cheers, which it could be going too hard. It could also be fueling. It's probably a combo of both. <laughs> so probably not one or the other. Nate, uh, did you have something to chime in on on this one? I do. <clears throat> this is, I warned about the same thing about should larger athletes with higher uh, power output do more and you might be at an advantage, uh, Greg. And I would just, I would try to find that limit, like on the longer rides, try more train for more and see what happens and see if you feel better. Uh, it's not going to probably most likely like ruin your body composition or something like that. Just give it a shot and see if how you feel during the ride. And if you don't feel better with more carbs or your stomach can't handle it, don't increase it pretty much. Good That's pretty much all there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ivy, uh, do you have any thoughts on this one? I mean, just, um, I wonder why so often, um, athletes or listeners are focused on minimum effective dose. Like, could there really be a loss in overshooting with carbohydrates? I mean, if you're just doing SIS gels, the loss might be that your stomach hurts or you feel sick, um, or it costs a lot of money to eat that many gels. Um, so, you know, like mixing in some other like solid foods or other sources for carbs is would help that. But really the only time I in theory have overshot in carbs or fueling in any facet, like I've just felt better. Like I've never experienced any negative impact from, from overshooting in that. So yeah, as long as you're adapted to it, right? As long as you're used to the rate, like if you're not used to it and suddenly you go from 60 grams an hour to 120, like, yeah, it's probably going to be tough, but as long as you're adapted to it, yeah, you're not going to have to 180. I'm from 90 to 180 and it was, uh, got some heartburn backed it off. Then I, I was getting close to that, uh, before Cape Epic and yeah, uh, just yeah. more training. 
I mean, to put this in context for people, let's say that you just averaged a hundred and uh, there's a, it's a really handy thing with trainer road. When you look at a workout, it will tell you how many kilojoules you're going to burn in that workout, which is so handy. Uh, it's really good for planning things out. If you are measuring your new, your intake and your outtake, everything else, it's really great. Uh, the formula is pretty darn simple. It's just average power times the duration in seconds. And then you divide the result of that by a thousand, and then you're going to get your kilojoules. So let's just say that you did an average uh, of 110 Watts for an hour. That's still almost 400 kilojoules. So that's the equivalent of taking in. When you look at that, that's the equivalent of taking in four typical gels, uh, to basically get to the point where you're offset from that. Most people, I know very few people that take in four gels an hour, right? <laughs> like, like that's really, uh, drink mix. That's why drink mix is good. Cause you can take in more, a little bit uh, easier. There's less logistical strain, but that's only 110 Watts. So this is like for, for some people, even if you're dropping down less than that, if you're doing like 50 Watts for an hour, that's still two gels. So when you look at this, there are a lot of us in our minds, like Ivy said, where we strive for the minimum effective dose and like, yeah, it's a long ride. I guess I'll take a gel an hour. Like if you're taking a gel an hour, you're just depleting yourself step by step by step. As you go along throughout that ride, you're not allowing yourself to work at the right rate. You're hindering recovery afterward, and it's not going to make you fat. It's just not going to. Your body's working harder than that. It's using more than what you're giving it. So if you get up to the point where you're doing 200 watts for an hour, that's 720 kilojoules. That's roughly seven gels uh, that you need to take in to get to the point where you even that out. And that's per hour. It's a ton. So you can see how this really adds up, especially if you're a rider that has, you know, a plus 200 watt FTP or plus 300 or geez, if you're like plus 400 watt FTP, then you, it's just, there's so much burn going on. It's tough to, to stay on top of it. So this is why we always strive for athletes to fuel the work because it's really hard to do so. And when you don't do it, you don't just lose out on that workout, but you lose out on subsequent workouts. And that's why your training gets really hard in week three in week four in week five, et cetera, because it starts to compound and have this effect where your body's just like, give me more but you're just requiring more and more from it. So awesome. I, th I think that covers it for this week. I feel yeah. like a broken record on these carb things, but we keep getting questions. We keep getting them, man. Yeah. Ellen, honestly, <laughs> in events too, Ivy, don't you, I still see the majority of what I see in terms of fueling habits with other riders are not like, they're not getting to the point where they're fueling the work. No, it's, this is a common theme for us for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, look, if you feel the work, it's going to make you faster. That's how it works. So you'll feel like you're cheating. Like somebody said in an earlier question, it's pretty awesome. So hard to overshoot it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See how much you can take instead of how little you can take. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening, everybody go to trainerroad.com and sign up to get faster. It's, this is the time, uh, you've got big goals probably, or just fun things you want to do. And this is the time to start sign up. So then you can start getting faster can build a plan and plan builder adaptive training is going to take care of it. And you don't even have to take an FTP test. I was thinking of making a meme the other day, Nate of like, you know, when you go to like a, a easy manufacturing button. facility, yeah, the easy button's good, but a manufacturing facility. And it says like X days since the last accident, I was thinking about like X days <laughs> since my last FTP <laughs> test. Yet it, my FTP is still accurate because it just dropped me down the other day from three Oh three back to two ninety two because I haven't been training consistently. And I was so grateful. It was awesome. I like, then did my workout. It adapted all the workouts. And then after that, I went and did my workout and it was chef's kiss. It was perfect. It was exactly what I needed. It's just like, yeah. 
you never even have to worry about it. So, you didn't have to have that awesome. experience of going so hard on a RAM test and then getting the the reduced FTP, which is like we want the accurate number, but it just feels hard. It feels like something's off on that. So just be able to click a button and go, okay, now I'll get a workout nice. and that's the right level is, is nice. It's so cool. So go sign up, have your fastest year yet, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.